It's the Americhicks with Kim Monson. Now, while this is all going on, I went through President Trump's speech and uh, Chuck and Nancy's rebuttal. The most important story. The American people finally said enough, and that is why they elected Donald Trump. The latest in politics and world affairs. Britain's version of Medicare for All is struggling with long waits for care. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. Because ideas matter. It's the Americhicks, dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Indeed, let's have a conversation and welcome. I am Kim Munson. We dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Today is Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to all of you. Hope you are having a great day. And we have a a really super show planned for you. In segments two, three, and four, we will be talking with Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr. He is a professor at Hillsdale College. He's also the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. And uh, as we're talking about labor, uh, those that created jobs, this whole book about the myth of the robber barons implies that these guys took something. But when we really look at the story, they actually created something. So that'll be very fascinating. And we'll talk about that in segments uh, two, three, and four. Uh, But when we're looking at all of these issues, the issues are, are freedom versus force, force versus freedom. And ultimately, socialism comes down to force. It's being romanced these days. But it ultimately comes down to force. And we are Americans. Surveys show that we actually really support freedom. We like freedom. And remember, it is never compassionate to take other people's rights, property, or freedom via force, whether it's with a weapon, policy, or unpredictable and excessive taxation. So that's why this whole discussion with Dr. Folsom is going to be so interesting, because we're seeing government get involved more and more into the things that that make our lives uh, better, and they're making it worse. Uh, They're socializing, transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. And uh, when government gets involved, the price goes up and the supply goes down. So first of all, I want to say thank you, Producer Steve uh, and the team, Zach, Patty, Keith, and Charlie. Thank you for your labor (laughs) and keeping this train on the track. I so appreciate you. We said it before. uh, We look to you. We call you the captain of the ship or the engineer of the train, and we're just your crew. And uh, it's a a group effort, but I think uh, it's being blessed. And you're in a place where you see so much of the response and the uh, the people reporting back to you how the show, you know, makes them feel like they're... uh, Hopefully being, learning something. Yeah, you they're, know? they're being fed, uh, not so much in a spiritual way, but in just being a citizen. Well, and that is what we're working to do is to help you get your voices uh, so that you can talk with your friends, your family, your colleagues about these important issues that we are facing. And uh, so we're always searching for truth and, and to, to give you a perspective on these. And, and hopefully that is helpful. And to that, thank you to all you listeners. Uh, you are treasured, you're valued, and you have a purpose And every day, uh, I think we need to continue to work for excellence in heart, soul, mind, and body. So thank you so much. Uh, Let's jump in here for our inspiration and uh, decided to go to Calvin Coolidge, uh, president of the United States. He was uh, one of the few presidents that actually during his tenure, the national debt went down. So if he was able to do it, I think that we should be able to do it. And he says, nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. 
Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. And that's Calvin Coolidge. So, so, so uh, uh, poignant today for uh, Labor Day. Uh, So with that, Steve, are you ready for some funnies? There you go again, abusing that word. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, this is, this is a number of different vocations and some comments that they've made. Uh, one person said, I tried to be a tailor, but I just wasn't suited for it. <laughs> <laughs> or I took a job as an upholsterer, but I never recovered. How about this? I tried working in a car muffler factory, but that was exhausting. I wanted to be a barber, but I just couldn't cut it. Then I was a pilot, but tended to wing it, and I didn't have the right altitude. Or is that altitude? Altitude. Altitude. Uh-huh. Got it. Okay. I got, got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I studied to become a doctor, but I didn't have enough patience for the job. And lastly, I became a Velcro salesman, but I couldn't stick, stick. with it. Yeah, okay. I couldn't <laughs> stick to it. So with that, I've got a little bit of housekeeping. I want to make sure that you guys are all aware of this. And that is, first of all... I want to talk about TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. This is uh, was put into the Colorado Constitution by the people of Colorado, and it's just about good manners. It says, hey, PPBIs, politicians, pundits, bureaucrats, and interested parties, if you want to raise our taxes, if you want to incur debt that we have to pay off, or if you want to keep our tax refunds above, and we're going to give you a very, uh, a very generous formula of population plus inflation. If you want to keep our tax refunds above that, then you just have to ask us. But Steve, there is a there is a all out effort uh, to get rid of Tabor. So in on 2019 ballot. This November, there's probably going to be Prop CC. It was referred by the legislature to the ballot, and it is going to ask if the government can keep our tax refunds forever. And that's, there's actually something happening like that in Jefferson County as well. So they asked to keep your tax refunds. State asked to keep your refunds. Ultimately, you know, government gets bigger and our pocketbooks will get smaller. So, Natalie Minton is doing her second boot camp on the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. It's going to be on Saturday, September 14th. Uh, uh, Check-in starts at 1030. It's at the Lone Tree Library in Lone Tree, Colorado. And uh, the training starts at 11. You'll be done by 3. The cost is $20. For more information, go to coloradoengaged.com. That's coloradoengaged.com. And you can sign up there. It is very important that each of us... Put some work in, put some elbow grease in to make sure that we protect the American idea, Steve. Yeah, it can't be said uh, often enough. And we have been trying to get this out every time this we talk about Tabor. In the next two to three months, so wait, where are we here? Yes, September. Uh, in the next two months, for sure, watch and see what's going on. There is going to be a huge amount of pushback uh, coming our way in terms of trying to make the case for getting rid of Tabor. Look and see who the people are who are pushing this, and here's why. And you know what? It, it, you continue to bring forward that transparency in government. If we can watch what they're doing, and they have to be accountable to us for what they are doing, it makes for better government. It keeps more money in our pocket. Government has to be more efficient and do the limited things that we ask them to do instead of this ever, ever-growing government. And if, if in fact... 
we start to take the teeth out of Tabor, and they already have been working on that. But if we continue down that road, they're going to have a blank check. And when you see the the crazy things that are happening here with like a, a Governor Polis, I'm now calling him King Polis because of the executive orders. He's bringing down the pike to force people into you know, vehicles that he thinks they should drive or transportation that he thinks that they should take. And in essence, that is going to hurt labor, if you will, because people will not be able to use their vehicles to get to the jobs that they want or to use their vehicles to create the businesses they want. And so you hear all these, you know, radical left progressive Politicians and bureaucrats and interested parties say that they really care about labor, they really care about people, but when you look at the actual uh, effects of what they're doing, I, 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 think that, uh, I think that they're saying one thing and doing another, Steve. Yes, and we saw it last week again. Uh, there were two topics that we were covering back-to-back. Uh, one was King Polis and his declaration, uh, or his edict, and the second one was the Denver City Council temporarily stepping back from the carbon tax. Mm-hmm. But in both of those articles, the solution was create a panel, create an unelected body of people. If you hear the word commission, run the other way. Yeah. So the answer to everything is more government. And it is not the answer. Uh, So uh, with that, we'll keep you informed on that. But sign up for Natalie Minton's uh, boot camp regarding Tabor and go to ColoradoEngage.com for more information on that. And then uh, on a really high note, Grand Lake, Colorado is preparing for their U.S. Constitution Week. Check out GrandLakeUSConstitutionWeek.com. It's September 16th through September 21st. Uh, The Constitution was signed on September 17th. And here, this little town, this little beautiful nugget of uh, Colorado, they come together. There's so many volunteers uh, and uh, they celebrate the Constitution. Dr. Tom Cranenwitter will kick it off uh, at the beginning of the week. And then I'm going to be bookending it at the end. I'll be emceeing the main event. And Kevin Sorbo, who is a Hollywood actor, uh, he was uh, in the Hercules. He was in God's Not Dead. He's going to be the keynote speaker. And they'll have a parade, which is going to be a lot of fun. Beautiful fireworks over the lake on Saturday night. So go to GrandLakeUSConstitutionWeek.com for more information on that. And I hope to see you up there. That's going to be a lot of fun. So, Steve, Labor Day. Did you realize the first Labor Day holiday was celebrated on Tuesday, September 5th, 1882 in New York City in accordance with the plans of the Central Labor Union? The Central Labor Union held its second Labor Day holiday just a year later on September 5th in 1883. By 1894, 23 more states had adopted the holiday, and on June 28, 1894, President Grover, Grover Cleveland signed a law making the first Monday in September of each year a national holiday. But as you look at it, as you see that it was unions that was pushing this forward, if we now look at OpenSecrets.org heavy hitters, and they actually look at money going into politics... Unions, uh, if you total them up, are now the largest contributors to elections and campaigns in the United States. And all I can think about to say on that one, Steve, is, hmm, what do you think? Well, I've had a, uh, you know, based on my earliest experiences in the workforce, uh, aside from the military, kind of a really mixed uh, emotions over the whole organized labor thing. Uh, My father was very uh, insistent that I come to a full understanding of why uh, labor unions came about in the first place. 
And to his credit, he was absolutely right. My problem, though, throughout the years has been one of balance. You know, the pendulum swings back and forth so far to the extremes, well, to the union side, to the management side. And for all these years, we have still yet to find the happy middle ground. Well, and to that point, though, FDR, even though he was a progressive, he's, he warned of the danger of public sector unions. And so there is a difference. So when your father thought it was important that you understood labor unions, I think that, that they did, uh, they, they can certainly have a, a place. But once you get public sector labor unions, uh, you're, you're in... Um, you're in a situation where people that you, the taxpayers are paying then can use uh, um, public policy to influence public policy to tax people more to benefit the labor unions. And that is something that's extremely, I think, uh, disheartening. Yeah. And was it Reagan in 1980 or 81? I mean, the very first really <laughs> in our modern day were in terms of public sector unions was the air traffic controllers. That was... That was fascinating. Well, and you know, Steve, if somebody does not want to do a job, I really do believe that uh, in America, uh, each person uh, should be able to have the right of contract with an employer. So an employer should be able to work with an employee and say, hey, this is the job I have to do, and this is how much I'm willing to pay. And then the employee may say, gosh, you know, I think in order to do that job, I would need to have to be paid more. And so there is this this right of contract that should occur. And what we've seen now is labor unions have actually inserted themselves in between there. And sometimes productivity and quality goes down when that happens. Uh, So with that, Steve, even though they'll tell you the exact opposite in terms of you couldn't do this without us. And that's true. It remains to be seen. But but work, the dignity of work, the dignity of doing a job well, when we talk about labor, that is what I'm celebrating on Labor Day. And uh, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we, we will be talking with Dr. Burton Folsom regarding his book, The Myth of the Robber Barons. You're going to want to stay tuned because you are going to learn something. We'll be right back. At Hooters, you can watch the games with all your buddies. And when your buddies are the world-famous Hooters girls, there's always plenty of ice-cold beer and those craveable wings that'll knock your taste buds into next Tuesday. Hooters girls know plenty about football, but we really know the fans who live for it. So hang out with all your buddies all season long at Hooters, your official hangout for game day. Catch all the games at Hooters and enjoy a butter Bud Light draft with 10 boneless wings, just $10. Dine for two with the pitcher and nachos, just $20. All AmeriChicks sponsors are an exclusive partnership with the AmeriChicks and are not affiliated or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson and grow your business, contact Kim at AmeriChicks.com. That's AmeriChicks.com. You'd like to get in touch with one of Kim Munson's sponsors, but you can't recall their phone number. Find a full list of advertising partners on AmeriChicks.com. Just whistle while you work. Hey, welcome back and happy Labor Day. I am Kim Munson. As you know, we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Thrilled to be having a conversation with Dr. Burton Folsom Jr. Uh, He has taught at Hillsdale College for many, many years and written a book that I have found very fascinating. The Myth of the Robber Barons. And since it is Labor Day, we're going to be talking about some of the great American industrialists. So, uh, Dr. Folsom, welcome. 
Thank you, Kim. Good to be with you today. It's great to have you as well. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. I, I followed you for many years, uh, really got interested in your book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, but you have taught at Hillsdale College uh, for a while. Yes, I have. And uh, I, I taught at Murray State University uh, for many years and then went to Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale College is a fine institution, takes no federal money. Love it. And that fits nicely with the theme that I had in the book, The Myth of the Robber Barons. Well, and yeah, and to that point, Hillsdale takes no federal money. And uh, I love that because it in, <laughs> then you are not constrained by all these things that uh, are coming down regarding. I mean, I think there's a lot of indoctrination at many universities and colleges throughout America by not, not sharing the whole truth about different issues, Bert. Oh, absolutely. It's very distorted. It was a little bit when I was in graduate school over 40 years ago. But uh, at that time, scholars at least said, hey, if you've got uh, ideas about free markets, uh, that's fine. We want to hear them. We just think that government intervention is the solution to many problems. We would have an interesting debate like you are doing on your show here. But today there's less debate. There's more of a shut down the opposition. And hey, more than ever, we need to discuss what works, what doesn't work, what are the best ideas for Americans to go forward with. Well, in your book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, just in the title, you know, we, we've, uh, uh, again, I think in society and in uh, academia, They've looked at these these great industrialists, uh, you know, like Cornelius Vanderbilt, John Rockefeller, James J. Hill, Andrew Mellon, uh, the Scranton family, uh, Charles Schwab. These are many of the great industrialists that you have written about in the book. And, and they've been labeled as robber barons. And obviously, robber does not have a good connotation. So right out, off the bat, uh, we're, we're talking about something from the negative. Well, we are, and we're talking, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? Robber is the word being used, and yet this generation uh, after the Civil War, that generation from, say, 1865 to 1900, uh, they were the ones who launched the American experiment to such success that we went from being a second-rate power in industry to be the dominant industrial power in the world. That generation made the prosperity that we still enjoy today possible. And to that point, I continue to think that we are living off the fruits of that free economy from back there. We're, we're seeing a lot of government policy trying to get this tapped down, but it was so powerful that everyday American people, we don't, I don't think we take, I don't think we're grateful enough for the prosperity that we have. And as you mentioned, I think it goes all the way back to these guys that are now being labeled as robber barons instead of the great industrialists that they were. Well, prices dropped in every commodity which they sold. I mean, that, that puts the lie to the word robber right there. Americans and people in the world paid less for the products that these industrialists sold uh, steadily throughout the Gilded Age or the late 1800s. Uh, oil, steel, railroads, those were the major industries of the late 1800s. Prices came down in all industries to the point that in Rockefeller's case, people could light their homes for one cent an hour with the kerosene he sold. But, Kim, I want to go just one step further and say they, they laid the foundation for the 20th century by Henry Ford in the automobile or Herman Hollerith in his invention of the computer 
in the 1890s uh, to do the U.S. Census. That laid the basis for the two big industries that, that kept the United States in world leadership uh, since 1900. Okay, and just a question. In 1890, the lane uh, for the computer was that 1990? 1890. The U.S. Census in 1880 took 13, it took over 10 years to compile because we were adding and subtracting the uh, families one at a time. But uh, with the 1890 census, we had the development of the use of the adding machine, the typewriter, those inventions of the, of the late 1800s. We added those into a computer system with punch cards. And Herman Hollerith was able to do the whole 1890 census in, in about one year as opposed to 13 years before. And later, his company was the foundation of IBM. Fascinating. And, and so what what we're seeing here is the great industrialists took products, they took these ideas that made people's lives better. I mean, just think if you could then instead of having to go out and cut wood to, you know, have energy in your home or, or light candles that for just one cent you could turn on a light. I mean, how what? how that how that helps people. It does. And it's interesting because the people at the time used these products the Ford and his automobiles or, or Rockefeller with the oil or Carnegie and Schwab with the steel or James J. Hill and the railroads, uh, they used these products and, 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 and liked them. I mean, a business increased abundantly. And what, uh, you say, well, why would they ever be called robber barons? And the answer is because historians have turned the focus to saying, hey, these people made lots of money, which is also true. In other words, we get the first billionaire in John D. Rockefeller, the first billionaire in U.S. history. And they're saying, these people, these people created uh, vast wealth, but look, they became multimillionaires. And so that's the focus. There was more inequality, therefore they're robber barons, without looking at the fact that the rising tide lifts all boats. And they pulled the whole U.S. economy up into world leadership. It's astonishing to me that uh, we don't tell the true story about these guys. Now, I'm sure that they weren't perfect. I, I, you know, I'm sure that they were very competitive in their businesses. But they, these guys built these businesses without government intervention. Uh, so which of the first, quote-unquote, robber barons should we talk about, Bert? Well, uh, you're right. They're not perfect. And the, the first one I talk about in, in the, myth of the, ro- the book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, is Cornelius Vanderbilt. And uh, he, he, was, he was a crusty character. But if you look at his impact on markets and on people's lives, it was positive because in both steamships and railroads, he provided a faster service, a more efficient service, a safer service at a lower price to all his customers. Now, did he receive government money to do this? No, he didn't, uh, but his competitors did, <laughs> which is kind of interesting, isn't it? I, it very. In the steamship, yeah, in the steamship business, Edward Collins received uh, subsidies to run his steamships, but he kept raising his prices for customers, and he had accidents, ran into an iceberg with one of his ships, Oops. killing over 400 passengers. Vanderbilt had no such circumstances, and he was running his business uh, for cheaper costs and charged customers less and received no federal subsidy. So he got rich because he provided a safe, faster product at a reasonable price, 
people like that. They were willing to trade their hard-earned dollars for that value, and he got rich because of it. And so that was all like a, a free exchange instead of yes. force. And on the show, we talk a lot about uh, freedom versus force, force versus freedom. And when you get government involved, for example, you mentioned Edward Collins, government forcibly takes money from somebody else so that they could subsidize Edward over here. And his product was less efficient, less safe, and more expensive. That's that's a correlation that I see quite often when government gets involved, Bert. I do, too. That's been my conclusion after studying many of these industries. And that's why I thought it was good to begin with Vanderbilt. He was the first American to be worth $100 million, and he became the richest American by giving customers what they wanted. What a novel idea. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What a great idea. You know, and Bert, uh, we've got just a couple of minutes. I have done some research, and some, some quote that I saw said, people can make money one of two ways. You can earn it. Or you can take it. Now, of course, you can take it if you have a weapon or through war. But you can also take it via public policy and excessive and unpredictable um, taxation. Uh, What would be your comment to that statement? I think it's true. You You can either produce something that people want to buy and sell it to them and make money that way. Or you can rig, rig somehow the economic system by uh, forcing people to buy your product, in, in other words, having a government monopoly of some kind. Uh, and that is, uh, those seem to be the two, two ways. Uh, the one that has worked best for the United States, the ones that leads to economic growth, is to have competition and people trying to produce products that people want to buy. And then the ones who produce the best products at the best price end up prevailing. Uh, yeah, that seems to work out pretty well. Uh, let's go to break. When we come back, uh, who's the next uh, industrialist, quote-unquote, Robert Barron, that you want to talk about? James J. Hill is Chapter 2, and his story is a replica, in many ways, of the Vanderbilt story because he prevails privately with against opponents who receive federal subsidies. It is a fascinating story. And so this is Kim Munson. We are on the line with uh, Bert Folsom. He is the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. Uh, he t- uh, teaches at Hillsdale College, and it is a fascinating book. It's an easy read. It's, it's just uh, it's quite short, but it is very powerful. So we're going to go to break. We'll be right back. Hey, Jason McBride with Presidential Wealth Management. You always have such great nuggets of wisdom, you know, and it's important to uh, prepare and failure to prepare. You prepare to fail. But one of the most interesting quotes that you recently came up with was one by Warren Buffett. That's right. Uh, All my nuggets of wisdom are not my own. In fact, most of them are learned from smarter people than me. (laughs) The great part about that is I have so many people to choose from. Isn't that great? That's right. That's right. But this one from Warren Buffett, he said it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. And I think that one is really self-explanatory. You know, when it comes to investing, it's very tough 
to react without getting emotional when things start to go wrong. If you haven't kind of prepared your entire setup or portfolio for a rainy day in advance. So I think it's very smart uh, to diversify, and that means true diversification, uh, with some things that are very safe, some that may be a little bit more risky, uh, rather than just having a whole bunch of, of things that can all go down when the market goes down. Well, and one of the great things about it is is you can actually give people another set of eyes on a nest egg so that uh, you can make sure that you can, I mean, each individual is different. And so as they prepare for uh, their rainy day, they need to look at their individual needs and kind of their comfort level as well. Well, I think that's very true. And what I believe, Kim, is you, it's very hard to control your emotions. Uh, Anything we can do to take away that stimulus that may create a negative emotion where you may make a bad decision. I think it's much easier to do that than to try to deal with that emotion when it comes up and make it go away because you can't. It's impossible. Well, that seems like that makes sense. So if people like more information with uh, Jason McBride, Presidential Wealth Management, be sure and check out chickspresidential.com. That's chickspresidential.com. And uh, I know that uh, you can, would be happy to help people with that. You betcha. Just give us a call. Call 303-694-1600. Thanks, Kim. Okay, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Are you looking for news, not propaganda? Ready for a news source you can actually trust? How about a news site that doesn't want to sell you a subscription? Visit CompleteColorado.com to see all the latest news from around Colorado. Complete Colorado's staff scours news sources from around the state and nation to bring you only the top stories that affect you right here in our great state. Updated three times a day, CompleteColorado.com has full-time reporters doing original investigations and reporting like newspapers used to do, as well as opinion and political commentary from a variety of Colorado voices. And CompleteColorado.com is the only place to read columnist Mike Rosen. Always fresh content, always free, always informed. CompleteColorado.com, your complete source for Colorado news. I Hey, welcome back. I am Kim Munson, and we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. I am thrilled to be having a conversation this Labor Day with Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr. He is a professor at Hillsdale College, and he is the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. And uh, that is such a misnomer uh, right off the bat, the robber barons, because it implies taking something via force. When the stories that you are telling are of people that did not take money that had been taken from others uh, and given to them as subsidies, but in fact, they offered a product that people wanted. Uh, So in the first segment, we talked about Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, and he was in the steamship and railroad business. Now let's talk about James J. Hill. Of Of all of the essays on these guys, I I didn't know that much about him. I found him fascinating. So tell us about James J. Hill, Bert. Well, he is fascinating. He's an immigrant. And it's interesting, isn't it? uh, uh, The ultimate story here is on railroads and transcontinental railroads. And those who built the transcontinental railroads, uh, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific, I'm thinking of in particular, were businessmen in the United States who wanted to get federal subsidies. And they failed. 
uh, ultimately to produce a product that was worthy of consumers. In the case of the Union Pacific, they went broke several times, and the whole company had to be reformed. But here you have James A. Hill building a transcontinental railroad, the Great Northern Railroad, with no federal subsidy. And he's an immigrant. And furthermore, he's a disabled immigrant. He lost one of his eyes in a, a childhood accident. So he, he he wasn't going looking for disability insurance or disability, a federal subsidy. He was looking to produce a great product and meet the needs of customers and build a railroad from St. Paul, Minnesota to Seattle, Washington without one cent of federal aid. How did he do it? Well, he did it. Uh, it, it. We can start out the Union Pacific, which was, you know, even I, even Abraham Lincoln, who was a good president uh, overall, favored the subsidies to the Union Pacific and thought that he could pick the right people, uh, Granville Dodge in particular, to run it and that it would be an efficient railroad. But the, he paid by the mile, and so the Union Pacific had incentives not to build a particularly straight railroad, <laughs> not to build the most efficient railroad. They did it quickly so that they could get the subsidies quickly. And ultimately, it had to be rebuilt and was a failure. The uh, James J. Hill saw that and thought, this, this is ridiculous. That's no way to build a railroad. So his strategy, rather than saying, government, give me money and I'll build the railroad, his strategy was, let's make the land out in the Dakotas and Montana and Washington uh, let's make uh, the land in those states, let's make that land show itself to be profitable and build the railroad slowly as the areas become profitable. So he's relying on not only farming but on cattle, transporting them in the Dakotas and Montana, the copper in Montana. He helps make that profitable. Once he gets to Washington, he's selling, uh, working on their apples, their lumber, all of this to sell and bring out to the Midwest and the East on his Great Northern Railroad. So he makes the railroad profitable as he goes along so that he's never in a huge amount of debt. And ultimately, when the Panic of 1893 hit the United States, the Union Pacific went broke. The Central Pacific was in great trouble. The Northern Pacific went broke and ultimately would, would be bought out by Hill. And then you have uh, James J. Hill with his Great Northern Railroad while the others are losing. He's gaining money. He's, he's making profits on his railroad. He builds it straighter, more efficiently, and at less cost than the other transcontinental railroads. That's absolutely fascinating. And then ultimately, his dream played out uh, of um, railroads coming together, right? Yes. And, uh, I mean, he at least bought... The Northern Pacific went broke. It was somewhat close to his railroad, so he was going to buy it out and thought he could use that as in transporting goods back and forth. And ultimately... He lost in the Sherman Antitrust Act, which attacked him and said that would give him an, un, an, uh, an unfair monopoly of trade, which was odd because you still did have the Union Pacific and Central Pacific. But anyway, you know, he was the one who was attacked by the government, uh, by the Sherman Antitrust Act. But so he never actually was able to fulfill that part. But it didn't matter. His Great Northern Railroad was perhaps the best built railroad in the country anyway and continued to make profits. It's the Burlington Northern today and uh, is a very strong railroad. Yeah, that is. And, you know, I continue. We see a lot of uh, a lot of government subsidies 
um, well, here in Colorado, I don't know about other states, but it's under the guise of economic development. We have yes. economic development departments at the local level, the county level, and the state level. And the more that I've come to learn about this, and I did serve on city council for four years in my community, and what I, yes. what I realized is that this whole economic development thing is saying to, and it's typically big business, that uh, and my friend Helen Raleigh pushes back. I would say that that they would give them uh, subsidies. She said government doesn't give anything. Government just takes less from one person than another. So they say to big right. business and tax incentives or you know however the deal is structured, we're going to take less tax money from you, or we're going to give you incentives, uh, and we're not going to do that to the other guy. Which then you have. Politicians and bureaucrats and interested parties picking winners and losers instead of you keeping do. the the uh, playing field level. And uh, so, right. what you just mentioned about James J. Hill, I, I'm suspect on the Sherman Antitrust Act that sometimes competition likes to come in and use government to stifle you know their competitors. I don't know if that happened there, but that does no, no, happen yes, a that's lot. Exactly. Yes. Yes, that's exactly the kind of thing that's happening. It happened to Rockefeller, too, the same kind of thing. Yes, you have competitors, and you can, it, you can either succeed in your competition by producing a good product that people want to buy at a good price, uh, and it's safe that people want to buy, or you can somehow rig the system by getting a subsidy or preventing a competitor from competing. And uh, that, in some ways, that's more appealing to people, uh, to people who want to make money, because you think, gee, uh, here's Kim on the city council. If I can in some way appeal to her through a bribe or some other way, then she can give me an exclusive contract to sell my product and get, put me an advantage over my competitors. And that's more appealing to a lot of people than, hey, I hate to go out in the market and have to be better than everybody else. It's easier to, to get a government advantage and win the competition that way. But the people who made America great uh, in the late 1800s, those people produced quality products at competitive prices, and we allowed them to compete and they made America into a world power. And they became rich doing that, and now we see uh, folks that want to look back at history and imply that th these guys robbed others uh, for the money that they made instead of uh, the fact that actually they created this product uh, that people yes. wanted to, to trade their hard-earned money, hard money for. So, Okay, let's talk about who's the next guy we should talk about. Well, you've got uh, John D. Rockefeller, the first billionaire in U.S. history. And, you know, one thing I like about Rockefeller, too, is he never really had labor problems. We're, we're talking about Labor Day. Rockefeller, it's interesting because uh, there was labor unrest, and we did have some strikes here and there. This isn't to say every businessman was honest or had integrity or that all the workers uh, were reasonable in their reaction. Unions are a legitimate operation, and we did have some strikes and industrial unrest. But it's interesting with the great entrepreneurs, the Rockefellers and others, often they made the decision, Henry Ford was the same way, that, hey, if we pay workers quite a bit, our workers will get good workers, and then they'll be loyal to our company and produce good work. And Rockefeller and Ford both had very little industrial problems. Ford very late in his career did, but, but early uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when they were really making their businesses go, uh, both of these 
entrepreneurs, the first two billionaires in U.S. history, had very uh, limited labor problems. They were paying good wages, and people flocked to work to their companies. And by the way, America as a whole must have been that way because we received a net immigration uh, to this country of tens of millions of people in the late 1800s. And... Uh, uh, if we didn't have good jobs and that paid well, they wouldn't have been coming over here. It's interesting that you would say that. I just recently uh, interviewed uh, uh, someone who said that that they came to America uh, and wanted to work here because of the great opportunity. And just a, a side note, uh, my great-grandmother probably came over on one of Cornelius Vanderbilt's ships. And she, <laughs> okay. she was, uh, we would call her an indentured servant today. At least this is the family lore that we have. She immigrated from Germany. And she ended up working for a family in Omaha uh, to you know, help with the children and, and clean house and all to, um, okay. to, to pay off her, her ship's fare. And uh, once that happened, she married my great-grandfather, who whisked her off to the plains of western Kansas. And uh, they lived in a two-room sod house. But uh, it was quite what? a story. But uh, they, they had a better life. They were poor, and it was difficult. But yeah. they ended up uh, ultimately being successful. So I, uh, as I was reading the story, I'm like, I bet that she probably was one on one of Vanderbilt's ships there. So let's well, uh, possibly if she if she wanted a low rate and a safe ship ride, that's exactly the way to go. Well, and I, I think that that was the case. So let's uh, let's jump into um, shall we talk about Andrew Mellon? That's fine. He's a great entrepreneur and a great politician, both. Okay, and because uh, he was like what um, Secretary of the Treasury or something? Is that right? Correct. Okay. Under Coolidge and Harding, and actually under Hoover, too. Oh, you know what? We're, let's go to break, because you bring up Coolidge. And I have looked at the U.S. debt uh, under our historical debt, and it actually went down uh, when Coolidge was in office. And that's a fascinating story. So let's talk about Coolidge and Andrew Mellon, both as the entrepreneur the great industrialist and the politician. Uh, so we'll be right back. This is Kim Munson. I am talking with Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr. He is uh, an, a professor at Hillsdale College, as well as the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. We'll be right back. Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect private property rights. Karen Levine believes in homeownership. Because of Karen's love of dogs, Karen volunteers with GER, Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies, helping Golden Retrievers find their forever homes. Choose Karen Levine to buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Karen Levine comes highly recommended by the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. Call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. Come join the 88 Drive-In for all your favorite blockbuster movies. We're open seven days a week. Admission is only $9 per person, and children under 12 are free. Friday, August 30th through Thursday, September 5th, features will include Angry Birds 2, The Art of Racing in the Rain, and Scary Stories. And remember our popular Monday through Thursday pizza special. Get one 12-inch pizza served fresh and hot from our oven and two tall, cool 16-ounce sodas, all for only 12 bucks. Plus, now you can top it all off with our new sweet, crunchy churros and a steaming cup of hot chocolate. 
For more information, go to our Facebook page or visit our website at 88drivein.net. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. My Hey, welcome back and happy Labor Day. I am Kim Munson, and we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. This is quite a conversation with Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr., who is the author of The Myth of the Robber Barons. In that word robber, it implies that these folks have taken something from someone else by force. In essence, uh, how they got rich was because they created a product or a service that hardworking individuals were willing to trade their hard-earned dollars for because they believed, and it did, it made their lives better. So Andrew Mellon is a fascinating read. Uh, He was both an entrepreneur and um, was a secretary of the Treasury. Tell us about him as an entrepreneur, uh, Bert. A very good entrepreneur. You have to think, he's very soft-spoken. He's not like, say, James J. Hill or Cornelius Vanderbilt. Those two were flamboyant. Uh, or Andrew Carnegie, he was flamboyant. But uh, Mellon, who was from Pittsburgh, like Carnegie, uh, was actually very quiet. He didn't like the public to, to be to speak in public. He liked to do business and and be very helpful. And he was a banker at first, but he liked to do it behind the scenes. And he he, he would loan money to. Uh, industries that he thought had a good chance to be profitable. He helped start the aluminum industry. In fact, he had an aluminum automobile uh, that was almost all aluminum. He was active in oil, and uh, Gulf Oil was was one of his companies, and very competitive with the, the idea of service stations, gas stations, and all of this, and uh, saw the, the rise of the United States and how these products would be helpful. In his, uh, he became one of the wealthiest people in the United States, behind Rockefeller and Ford. We think of him as a, probably the third wealthiest American in the country in 1920, and because we had debts, national debts from World War One and from the Wilson administration from all the spending, we had increased the national debt greatly. And President Harding and President Coolidge, and later President Coolidge, wanted to bring Mellon in, Andrew Mellon, because they thought. Why not bring a businessman in to solve the nation's economic problems? What a novel so idea. Had, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, heard of that. Huh, who and, would have thunk uh, it? And, and, and lo and behold, he had some very good ideas for things that could help the United States. Tax reduction was one of them because he felt that taxes that were too high were ultimately taxes that stifled economic development. So the the cutting of taxes and when I when I say too high, the top rate when Mellon came in was seventy three percent on wealth, the wealthiest people. Well, if you have to give three fourths of everything you make to the government, it definitely determines how little or how much you're willing to take a chance. And so Mellon felt we had to get that down to a top rate of twenty five percent. And Harding and Coolidge agreed, and ultimately we did that in the 20s. That tax reduction, which, by the way, was on all groups, rich and poor, it was across-the-board tax cuts, ended up actually increasing the amount of revenue taken in in taxes. In other words, it, it, it sounds counterintuitive to cut the tax rates 
actually generated more tax revenue because you had so many more people who were prosperous. As Mellon would say, 73% of nothing is nothing. 25% of something is something. And we had a lot of somethings that were being produced Mm -hmm. in the very prosperous decade of the 1920s because Mellon and Coolidge helped encourage people to, in a free economy, to invest. Well, and I think, Bert, that's the difference between optimists and pessimists, or we see it in political uh, um, discourse today, and that is, is I think those on the radical left think that the economic pie is static, that it's just a certain size. But these great industrial industrialists realize that the pie can get bigger. We can't even imagine through creativity and innovation how big the pie can get. And so if you have more people participating in a bigger pie, tax revenues actually go up. And uh, so it seems like politicians, I'm calling them PPBIs now, Uh, pundits, politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties seem to be wanting to keep the the pie small. And whereas if we think about the sky is the limit, you know, again, I think we can have a great industrial uh, revolution again. Well, to, to, to put your ideas that you expressed very well there into another form, during the 1920s, we increased our, the pie, the economic, the economy of the United States, so much that it's the equivalent of adding the states of Texas and California in the 1920s. Wow. And so, I mean, it's like having everything that's in those states, all the economy, added in one decade. And, and you think, well, gosh, how could that be? Well, yeah, you, you have talking movies invented. I mean, you have things uh, like radio uh, that are invented. You, you have incredible improvements in automobiles that come into the 1920s where they become much more uh, of, a, of a popular item. I mean, everything from like uh, the invention of the cheeseburger to the invention of scotch tape to the invention of sliced bread, you know, a, a, a slew of inventions. The patents and the inventions came forth. And so uh, washing machines, uh, increase in telephones, all of this, and the magnitude of the increase was such that the American economy just in, uh, prospered greatly, and we had only uh, 3% unemployment and less than 1% inflation we cut one-third of all the national debt away. It just disappeared. We were making more. Uh, the low tax rates were generating more revenue than we were spending, and we had a doubling of college enrollments. Black and white, rich and poor, all uh, gr- as groups, gained in the 1920s. So it seems like it would be a good idea to try to emulate that. Uh, and let's just very quickly talk about the debt, because uh, I feel the debt is out of control right now. Uh, there's some, some yes. good things happening in the economy, but I feel that we as a generation need to step up to the plate and tighten our belts uh, and uh, work to pass on something to the ne- next generation that's not a big, fat IOU. And uh, I think we've got we've to take a strong look at spending and bring that down. But Andrew Mellon, when he became uh, the Treasury Secretary, they actually were able to reduce the national debt. So it can be done, right? Right. That was the last decade in which in our history in which the national debt was less at the end of the decade than it was at the beginning of the decade 
And I, I want to add one more thing. Some people say, well, yeah, but how didn't some of this cause the Great Depression? Absolutely not. Everything we're talking about here was the opposite of a Great Depression. What caused the Great Depression was more government intervention. We intervened with the first federal farm program. We intervened, intervened with uh, federal government raising interest rates, making money harder to borrow. Uh, ultimately, Hoover raised the income tax rate back up to 63% on top income, which stifled investment. And then we had a bailout program that, where if the federal government picked and, choose and mm-hmm. chose which companies to bail out and which ones not to bail out. A terrible economic policy once the government was involved. But in the 20s, before 1929, there was limited federal involvement, and therefore we had a very prosperous economy. Okay, well, Bert, we are just about out of time. We've got about four minutes, so I'm going to move to the future here and talk about a quote-unquote industrialist that I really struggle with with that word, and that's Elon Musk. He has been uh, romanticized to many, many young people as this great innovator. And, and actually, the Tesla cars are pretty cool. I have a friend that, that has one, and uh, they are cool. But, and this is the big but, is that uh, they're not uh, profitable. I, I had found an article from 2015, the Los Angeles Times, and at that point, Elon Musk and his companies had received $4.9 billion in government subsidies. And uh, Tesla is being propped up here in Colorado. Uh, as you may know, there is a, a mandate now that is, is uh, working to force dealers to sell a certain percentage of their fleets must be electric cars. And if they're not, they are going to have to pay a penalty. And interestingly enough, they can buy credits to offset that penalty. And guess where they can buy those credits? From Tesla. Tesla. (laughs) So this is so opposite to you know what we've been talking about in the myth of the robber barons of of guys you know creating a product that doesn't need government intervention if it's such a great idea you shouldn't have to force people what's your thoughts about elon musk well absolutely absolutely historians look at the past you know when, when i wrote the myth of the robber barons I, I felt very confident because i was writing on events that happened over 100 years ago in other words i could watch the consequences and the fallout from the policies that the United States adopted and from the entrepreneurship of Vanderbilt Hill, Rockefeller, and so on. So in writing that book, as a historian, I could have confidence because I had 100 years uh, after the fact. Elon Musk is with us right now. All you can say is that he is... uh, The the system you describe historically has been a recipe for failure, and it takes a while for the failure to play out. But the failure is what happens when you when you do those kinds of subsidies and give those kinds of advantages to particular entrepreneurs. The businesses tend to be unsuccessful, and the taxpayer tends to be on the hook for a loss. Well, and I really think that uh, it, it. I want to say it's almost arrogant for government to pick winners and losers like this. And of course, you know, that's probably for another show, but it's all done under the guise of kind of the virtue signaling of, you know, electric cars and all. And and, and I would like to have an honest discussion about electric vehicles. It's a terrible, it's a terrible system. I mean, part of what I uh, said in the myth of the robber barons, the government picked Edward Collins as the winner in steamships. He lost Vanderbilt 
who received no federal funds was the success. Uh, the government picked uh, the Union Pacific Railroad as to be the winner. They ultimately lost. The money was wasted. And James J. Hill built the unsubsidized, unfederally subsidized transcontinental railroad. You could take it into airplanes. The government picked Samuel Langley to give subsidies to to invent the airplane. He failed with two flights, the two flights they subsidized. Nine days after the failure of his second flight, the unsubsidized Wright brothers, two non-college-educated bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, ended up building and operating the first successful airplane. Uh, We see it time and again that uh, the government's inability to pick winners and to actually uh, stifle the economy so that it takes longer for the real winners who can produce good products at lower prices to come forward and give customers the advantages that they seek. Oh, my gosh. Bert Folsom, so well said. And this Labor Day, it's something that we really need to think about. So, Dr. Burton Folsom, Jr., your book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. And our quote for today is from the great industrialist and U.S. Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon. He says, gentlemen, prefer bonds. So today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. This is Kim Munson signing off. God bless you, and God bless America.